Welcome to everyone. My name is Tim Harris. I am blessed to be pastor of Woodburn Baptist Church and blessed to be here this morning with you worshiping the Lord. I open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We're going to begin with verse 14. Welcome to all of you at the Franklin campus this morning. Welcome to all of you in the overflow. God bless you. Worship along with us as we look to the word from the Lord. Most of you are used to the book of Revelation. You're used to thinking that you can't understand it, uh, used to thinking that it's all in code somehow. And uh, those who read Revelation that way probably haven't read it very well or not very often or not very closely. It's a whole lot easier to understand than you think. Revelation chapter 3 is a good example of that. The book of Revelation, of course, is all about the second coming, the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in preparation for that word of of coming, uh, you'll notice that there's uh, seven letters to seven churches. Uh, And these are real churches back in in the day of the Apostle John as he writes this word from the Lord. Seven letters to seven churches, very, very short words. We're going to look at one of those words to the church at Laodicea. The interesting thing about these letters is, is not that it's written in code. It's not that these symbols are hard to understand. On the contrary, the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to the churches that he knows, the churches that belong to him, the people that he knows so very well. And in reality, he's speaking their language. He's using the language that they would understand so crystally clear, absolutely clear. And the church at Laodicea, there are a few things that you might just keep in mind as we read so that you understand how how very uh, carefully the language is crafted for this particular church. Laodicea was a very, very wealthy city and proud of its wealth. Just prior to to this time when John would have been writing, there was a horrible earthquake in Laodicea, and and it was a devastating, devastating affair. Think about Hurricane Katrina hitting New Orleans. It was that sort of situation. But Laodicea would receive no aid from no surrounding city. They insisted that they had everything they need. They had all of the wealth. They were known for their banks, known for their gold, known for their wealth, so keep that in mind. Also keep in mind that Laodicea was known for its clothing and textile industry. Uh, Laodicea was famous for a particular kind of clothing, particular kind of wool, and it was black. It was glossy, beautiful, expensive, and black. Uh, Also keep in mind that Laodicea was known for its medical school, even back in that day, a medical school, and the very famous thing coming out of that medical school was a very famous eye salve for, for the curing of blindness, they would say. One more thing. Laodicea was known for its horrible, horrible, horrible water supply. It's a thing about the ancient world. The water was carried on an aqueduct, a big pipe system. The water actually came from way far away at a hot springs, and it was a hot mineral spring, so the water was kind of sulfury. If you were up at the hot spring, the water was very hot. It was wonderful, wonderful to soak in for therapy, all kinds of things. But the water would come that long distance down the aqueduct to the city, and by the time it got to the city, it was lukewarm sulfur water. Okay, so keep that in mind. And now we read the word of the Lord to the church at Laodicea. He knows these people and he knows how to talk to them. He also knows us and how to talk to us. So listen for his voice this morning. Revelation chapter 3 verse 14. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the amen. The faithful and true witness. The beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. 
But since you are lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That's what it says. You say, I am rich, I have everything I want, I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. And also buy white garments from me so that you will not be shamed by your nakedness and ointment for your eyes so you will be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent. The word there is, is a word that means boil, burn. The, the word is saying, I want you to burn for me. Be diligent and repent. Turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. Let's stop right there. This is interesting. It's a letter to a church. And where is Jesus in relation to this church? Uh, outside knocking. That's interesting, isn't it? Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. My grandmother, Virgie, years ago was at the mall with one of my aunts. It, it was a very crowded day at the mall. Uh, my grandmother's gone to be with the Lord now, but she was just an amazing woman, uh, absolutely amazing. Th this particular day, they were walking uh, down the middle there at the mall, and uh, a lady stepped out of the, of, the, of the restroom, stepped right out and was walking in front of my grandmother and my aunt. Then the lady coming out of the bathroom and saying in front, she was a very well-dressed woman. They said she had a, a nice coat on, a nice dress. She had perfectly done hair, had her purse around. This woman was altogether a beautiful lady altogether. But the thing is, when she stepped out of the bathroom, she had this piece of toilet paper hanging out of her dress. You know, just coming out of her dress and wagging behind like a tail. Now, if you saw that, what would you do? Probably not what my grandmother did. My grandmother's walking behind her, and my grandmother starts reaching up to pull on it. Now, would you do that? She's going to reach up and pull that. She, I guess she's thinking she's just going to pull it on out for that lady. Would you do that? I would not do that in a million years. I mean, if somebody's got toilet paper hand their dress, I don't want to touch it. I, I don't want to touch it. I don't want to see the other end of it. And, and I certainly, when she feels the thing come loose and turns around, I don't, don't want to be the one she sees. Did you understand? But that was my grandmother. She was coming. She was going to pull that. She was going to take that. My grandmother could make friends wherever she went. The, the thing is, this lady who thought she was all together, this lady who thought she was all perfect, this lady who thought that she was ready to, to, to parade down the middle of the mall, she had no idea. There was a part of herself that she could not see. There was a side of herself that she was completely unable to see. And she really needed to know what everybody else would know about her. And that's exactly like the church at Laodicea. It's exactly the same sort of situation. There's a side of themselves. There's something about them that they can't see. And it's very, very important. It's very important. But the fact is there's a blind spot in their lives. And it is a critical, vital, devastating kind of blindness. 
they're not able to see themselves very well. This is the first thing Jesus wants to say to this church, the very first thing out of his mouth. He's got to make this church understand that they're not what they think, that they do not really appear in the way that they think that they appear. They are not really who they think they are. See, the thing is, the church at Laodicea, it's an amazing kind of congregation. They think they need nothing. They think that they are rich. They think that they have absolutely no need. Now, as I said, Revelation starts with this kind of report card for these churches. And this is the report card for Laodicea. And Laodicea, in their mind, they must be an A student. The report card for them would have to be glowing and excellent because that's how they see themselves. They see themselves as firing on all of the cylinders. They see themselves as a church that is alive and growing. They see themselves as absolutely in no need of anything from anybody. And Jesus says to them the devastating words, you have no idea. You say that you're rich and in need of nothing, but in truth, you are blind and poor and miserable and naked. They don't see themselves that way. Isn't that interesting? They don't see themselves that way at all. How do you explain that discrepancy? How do you explain that great gap between the way they see themselves and the way that Christ himself sees them? How do you explain that? On the one hand, Jesus says, you're like lukewarm water. And again, I remind you, that's the language they understand. Laodicea had this horrible, foul, lukewarm sulfur water that trickled down those aqueducts. And and that was the water that they were supposed to drink. But the water itself would make you gag. The water itself was so distasteful, so useless. Now, up at the source, up at the spring, the mineral spring, the water was wonderful. It was hot, and it was the kind of water that if you had arthritis or any sort of need, physical need, you could soak in that hot spring. And the warm water, the warm mineral water was wonderful, very, very useful if it's hot. If it were cold, it might be refreshing, a little more refreshing to drink. But the fact is that water was neither. It wasn't hot. It wasn't cold. It was just foul and lukewarm. And Jesus says, that's how you are, church. That's how you are in my mouth. Why would Jesus say that? We teach the children that Jesus loves them. We we always say that Jesus loves us. And a few weeks ago, I said over and over and over that Jesus loves the church. Jesus loves the church. So why would Jesus say to this church, you make me sick? You make me want to gag. You're like the lukewarm sulfur water. If you were hot or cold, I could perhaps use you. But as you are, you turn my stomach. Why would Jesus say that? Why would Jesus say that? Because it is the truth. Because it is the truth. And it's the truth they can't see. It's the truth that they would not arrive at on their own. They have no idea. They are spiritually lukewarm. It's important for us to consider, brothers and sisters, because according to this scripture and and what I can gather here, if you're lukewarm, you might be the last one to know. 
And that's very interesting, isn't it? Very, very interesting that the church at Laodicea that is so lukewarm, the church at Laodicea that receives this very, very severe, harsh word from Christ, they have no idea. They really see themselves very, very differently. They see themselves as rich, but Jesus says, indeed, you're poor. They see themselves as being clothed and glorious. He says, indeed, you're shameful and naked. They see themselves as, as absolutely able to see and able to understand. And Jesus says, you don't understand, you're blind. I can't read the scripture. You can't read the scripture without, without asking that question. Does that apply to us? If Jesus were to send a word to Woodburn Baptist Church, if we were to get our report card from the Lord this December, would it be a word like that came to some of the other churches, a word of affirmation and a word of praise and glory, or would it be a word more like this? I wonder if we're lukewarm. I don't exactly know how we would know because, again, that's the point of this scripture that they don't know. They can't see that about themselves. How would we know if we've become lukewarm? Because that's the thing about religion. It has this tendency to mutate. Religion, once you get it, in the very beginning, in many cases, it's a warm thing, a very brilliant, passionate sort of thing, your love for Christ. I remember when I first came to Christ, I remember the day I walked the aisle and I asked Jesus into my heart. It was a magnificent feeling. I can remember days as a teenager when I worshiped the Lord and I worshiped him so passionately, so with such devotion and, and gladness. I, I've had moments like that in my life and I pray that you have as well. But it's an amazing, amazing process of how over time, through the days, through the weeks, the months, the years, that heat of devotion can go very, very cool, and you hardly even recognize that it's happened to you. You hardly even notice. Because what starts out is this passionate devotion, this thrilling relationship with the Lord. When you pray and hear his voice, when you open the word and read the Bible and you hear his voice, that all disappears, but, but you continue going through the motions and what starts out as this passionate devotion to Christ, it, it mutates into this sort of religious substitute, which functions only to make you feel good about yourself. It functions only to make you feel good about yourself. And honestly, that's a devastating thing. It's a devastating thing when people who in reality are far from God start feeling good about themselves. It's a devastating turn of events. It's devastating when indeed Jesus is outside the door knocking to get in and we don't know that. That would be a devastating thing. Devastating to have a heart that has grown cold but you don't know it. Because you have a heart that continues to go through all of the same religious motions. This lukewarmness that Jesus talks about at Laodicea. This lukewarmness that may be a part of your heart and my heart. It seems to have two components. First off, a literal ignorance of the true spiritual condition. Literal ignorance of the true spiritual condition. Coupled with number two a real satisfaction with the way things are. That's horrible. Horrible. 
that we might not be able to know our own spiritual condition, that we don't understand that we are poor and miserable and wretched and blind and naked. If we don't know that, that's a devastating thing, especially if we are very, very satisfied with the way things are. You're lukewarm, Jesus says. And because of that, you turn my stomach. You make me want to vomit, Jesus says. I could vomit you out of my mouth. I could spit you out of my mouth. Your lukewarmness, it, it turns my stomach, Jesus says. What you really need, Jesus says, is to come to me. Now notice Jesus has already said, you're poor, you're bankrupt, spiritually flat, broke. And now Jesus says, you need to come to me and buy some things. Isn't that amazing? You're flat broke, so come to me and buy. I've got some things for you at a very special price. Come to me and buy. Wait, you just said they're broke. They are broke. Spiritually flat broke. Come to me and buy. What does he say that they should buy? Number one, gold. Come and buy from me gold purified in the fire. What is Jesus saying? Come and buy from me garments to clothe yourselves. What color garments? White garments. What kind of garments were they known for? They're beautiful, sleek, black, glossy wool garments. Jesus said, come, you need to buy from me all of the things that you think you already have. Wealth, clothing, eye medicine. All of the things they think they have. All of the things that honestly they're famous for. Jesus says, you don't know nothing. You need to come and get those things from me. What's Jesus saying? This is important. Jesus says, I am your source. I am your source. I am the source of everything you need. And you've got to understand how desperately, desperately you need me. I think one of the main characteristics of, of our lukewarmness is that sort of glib satisfaction, that, that, that feeling that we don't need anything. And that's Laodicea, and honestly, that's a lot of us. That self-satisfaction, that self-delusion that makes us feel like we've got it made, we've got it all together, and there's nothing in the world anybody can do for us, nothing in the world that Jesus could give us. We absolutely are content in ourselves. And Jesus says, you don't understand, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked, you're miserable, you need to come to me. So how would you know if you're lukewarm? How would you know that you're far away from God? Honestly, I think it comes down to what is the source of your life? What is your source of satisfaction? What is your source of strength? When you need strength, where do you turn? When you need confidence, where do you turn? When the wheels fall off of your marriage, what do you do? Where do you get your sense of, of personal wealth and value? Where do you get your sense of personal righteousness? Where do you get your sense of vision, your ability to see the world and to see yourself? And to see Christ, where do you get these things? Your only source is Christ. He's the only one, the only one who can provide what you need in your life. But truly, a lot of us, we live our lives a long, long way from the source, a long way from Christ. You don't think you need his strength. You really don't think you need him to clothe you with his righteousness. You're thinking you look pretty good. You really don't think that you need his eyes because you really, really enjoy seeing yourself the way you see yourself. You need to come to me, Jesus says. You need to come to me 
for all of the things you think you already have. Problem with that water was that it was just so far from the source. At the source, it was hot. At the source, it was wonderful. By the time it traveled all the way to Laodicea, it was foul. My friend, possibility is you are living your life way too far from the source, way too far from Christ himself. You call yourself a Christian and you don't really understand your true spiritual condition. And the problem is you're satisfied with it. You're satisfied with your Sunday morning only kind of Christianity. You've become satisfied truly with a Christianity without Christ. The possibility is we have become very proud of ourselves as a church for whom Jesus might be on the outside still knocking. Do you understand the horribleness of that kind of situation? If we really try to live our lives so far from the source, how do you know if you're doing that? I don't know. There's no real test. There's no diagnostic tool. I would just ask you to look at your own prayer life. Look at your own prayer life. Think about the past week. How many days did you ever stop and fall on your knees, go into your closet, go into a private place and pray? Oh, Brother Tim, I don't need to do that. I can just talk to Jesus while I'm driving down the road. And I know you can. I know I can too. But listen to me. If you never ever feel the need to pull over and fall on your face before him, you don't know him. If you're satisfied just driving down the road, talking to him like he's your best friend, he's not your best friend. He is the king of the universe. And if you never, ever feel that need to worship him, if you never fall on your face before him because you feel your sense of need and nakedness and blindness, there's something profoundly wrong with your heart. If you don't feel your need for him, and prayer is the language of dependence. Those who know they need the Lord, they pray to the Lord. They talk to him. And I'm not talking about just while they're driving down the road. They may do that too. But they understand the importance of praying and really praying. Not just praying on the fly. Not just praying as you go. But stopping your life to talk to your source, the source of everything you need in your life. If you don't pray, then don't you tell me you think you need him. You show by your prayerlessness that you feel no need for him. Which is to say, you are spiritually flat broke, bankrupt, poor, miserable, blind, and naked. And you don't even realize it you don't even know look Jesus says I stand at the door and knock it's a familiar verse isn't it and, and it's a familiar picture we've all seen those pictures from uh, all kinds of Sunday school books Christian art that picture of Jesus outside knocking at the door First off, don't miss that in this context, in this scripture, it's the door of the church that's closed to Jesus. It's the door of the church, and it's his church. But outside, he stands knocking at the door, always knocking, always waiting to be invited into his own church. And it's the same way in our individual lives, and this scripture applies both ways. It's the same way in your life. If you call yourself a Christian, your heart is supposed to be his throne, 
So he should not be on the outside knocking. He should not have to wait to be invited to come in and sit on his own throne in your heart. But indeed, this is how our lives are. This is how my life is and your life is. Jesus is somehow always outside knocking. And I am somehow in my life always inviting him in or leaving him outside. Always. Always. Why do we leave him outside? Why do we get so satisfied in being lukewarm or even cold? Why does that please us so much? How can we live our lives with him outside knocking and and us in here feeling so pleased and tickled with ourselves? How can that be? I think it comes down to what Jesus says. He says, look, I stand at the door knocking. If anyone will, what's the word? Hear my voice. If anyone will hear my voice and listen to me, then I'll come in. I think that's probably what snags you up. You don't necessarily want to hear what he's got to say. When Jesus speaks to me, when Jesus speaks to you, don't you understand? He's going to command your life. When Jesus begins to speak, he's going to tell you lots of wonderful things, but he's also going to tell you exactly what he wants you to do. He leaves no mystery there. People walk around and say, I just, Jesus never speaks to me. He never tells me anything. I'm saying, that's crazy. You don't understand what you're saying. He's talking to you all the time, but you won't listen. Because when he talks, he tells you what to do, and you have no intention of following him. You want to know why he's outside knocking? Because you do not want to know what he's got to say. You have no intention of listening to him. One of the scariest moments in my life, in your life too, if you've lived through this, is is that first moment when you have a baby and you take that baby and put her in the car. Happens at the hospital usually. Do you remember that? I remember pushing my wife in the wheelchair and she's got this baby and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, why are they letting us do this? Really, it's harder to get a hamster at Walmart than to go to the hospital and have a baby. I mean, at Walmart, they at least make you read the book, How to Care for Your Hamster. I mean, at the hospital, 23 hours, boom, we're out the door. And taking my wife down the, down the hall, she got the baby, we go out to the car. I've got, got the old beat-up Honda. I've put the car seat in the back seat. This car seat is enormous. Our baby's like a little peanut rolling around in the bottom of it. You remember this? I'm just shaking. I couldn't believe it. I, I'm just worried that I got the car seat in wrong. I'm afraid the whole thing will flop out. I'm just putting it in. I'm belting it again. I, I take my newborn son. I, I put the little thing right there in the car seat. The whole thing just swallows him. I mean, I want to wrap him in bubble wrap or something. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's the scariest thing. And then I start driving home. We only lived about 10 minutes from the hospital, but it took us an hour and a half because I drove like 15 miles an hour. I drove very slow. If Casey had let me, I'd have had the emergency flashers on. It's just a scary thing. I've got this baby in the car. Do you understand? Got this baby in the car. I hear a noise. Casey, what was that? He's passing gas. Should we pull over? No, just keep going. Oh, my goodness. It's the scariest thing to put that baby in the car for the first time. You know what the next scariest moment is? After that one, the first time you put your baby in the car, you want to know what the next scariest moment is? When he says he wants to drive. My, my son is 15 now. He says he wants to drive. I liked it much better when he was strapped in the car seat in the back facing rear. I like that better. Now he wants to drive. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. If you're laughing, you don't have kids. 
the other day, it was actually nighttime, and we were going to go to my mom's, which is really, really, if you're a law enforcement officer, please don't listen to this. We we're going to let Wade drive to my mother's house, which is actually pretty close. Casey has a hard time. Casey gets in the back seat. Casey wants to sit in the very back. She makes me sit up front with him. She gets in the back where she can be alone and pray. <laughs> Casey's in the back. I'm up front. This is no big deal. We're going to back out of the driveway, drive to mom's. Most of it's a gravel lane, no traffic. This, this is a piece of cake. I'm calm. I'm cool. You know, I love my son. I have confidence in him. So he starts up the car. I'm sitting I'm facing front. We're going to back out. It starts out real smooth, just real, real smooth. It was really pretty. Just, you know, lets off a little bit of gas. Starts out smooth. Casey's just praying softly to herself. I'm at the front. I'm cool. But then all of a sudden, like in one of those Star Wars movies when it's like, you know, the spaceship just takes off. It just takes off. And we are flying backwards, just flying backwards down the driveway. And the only words I can form are mailbox, mailbox, mailbox. I'm saying mailbox. I mean, we're just flying. My life is going before my eyes like they say it does right before you die. Mailbox, mailbox. Casey's in the back seat praying, Jesus, take the wheel. Jesus, take the wheel. It whips around. Car whips around in the turnaround exactly where it's supposed to go. And Wade looks at us like, what is your problem? <laughs> it was fine. But tell me, what was our problem? What was our problem? We were out of control. Have you ever noticed that on the passenger side, your brake won't work? You can say mailbox all you want, but you can't control it. I mean, you're just flying. You're just in the car. You are a passenger. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. To be real honest, most of you in this house today, and let's be real, most of you in this house are real comfortable having Jesus in the car with you. You're real comfortable just having Jesus ride along in your life. That's fine. Actually, you want that. That's the kind of relationship with Jesus that you desire. You just want him along for the ride with you, but you want to control things. You expect to be behind the wheel. You expect to call all the shots. You expect to go wherever you want to go. You simply want Jesus to be in the back seat. You want him to ride along so that if you have a problem, you can call on him. You want Jesus to ride along with you so that if you get sick, you can pray and ask him to heal you. You want Jesus to ride along with you so that if your teenager rebels, then you can go to Jesus and blame him for it. You, you want always have Jesus along, but only, only in the case that you need him. You want him along in case you have a test in chemistry or a final at school. You want him along for that sort of thing. You want Jesus to come alongside you when financially you hit rock bottom or when you lose your job. You want Jesus along for the emergencies. As long as he stays in his place in the back seat, you're happy with that. But don't you understand, Jesus wants nothing to do with that kind of relationship with you. He's not signing up for that. He's going to have nothing to do with that. Indeed, if you think that you're going to control your own life, if you think that he's going to come along and just bless behind you, you don't understand him. You don't know him. The, the fact is, if he's not in control of your life, your life is in trouble. If you are at the wheel, if you are charting your own course, you don't understand. You're going to drive your life off a cliff. You don't understand that, but Jesus does. That's why in the scripture he says, I stand at the door and knock. He says, I discipline those that I love. That's what the scripture says. 
He disciplines. He will do whatever it takes to make you understand your need of him. He will let you suffer the consequences of your ignorance. He will let you suffer the consequences of your own stupidity. He will let you suffer those consequences so that surely one day you will understand how desperately you need him. Without him, you're nothing. If he's on the outside of your life, your life is in trouble. I stand at the door and knock, he says. If you would just listen to my voice, I'll come in. It's it's a wonderful invitation. Jesus says, I'll come in. We'll be together. Most beautiful fact of Christmas, the most beautiful fact of the gospel is that God always wants to give us a gift, but the gift that he gives is always himself. If you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in. Fellowship together. I'll live life with you together. But you've got to understand, when he comes in, it's not your heart anymore. It's his heart. When he comes into your life, it's not your life anymore. It's his life. When he comes in, when he opens the door to your heart, you've got to understand it's no longer your money anymore. It's, it's his money. That means that your wallet, it's his wallet, not, not your wallet. It means that everything that you have, it belongs to him. And you must consider him. You must yield to him in everything. It's no longer your marriage. It's, it's his marriage. Don't you understand that? It means you've got to be a different kind of man with your wife. You've got to be a different kind of woman with your man. Don't you understand that? It means that they're not your kids anymore. They're his kids, which means you got to be a different kind of dad. you got to be a different kind of mom. You've got a very different kind of purpose. It's not about you anymore. It's about him. I stand at the door and knock. If you'll just listen, if you'll hear my voice. Do you want to know the moment when your heart turned lukewarm, it's the very moment you stop listening to him. It's the very moment you stopped hearing his voice. I stand at the door and knock, Jesus says, if you'll listen, if you'll hear my voice, I'll come in. I'll come in. Brothers and sisters, If God could give us a blessing today, a gift, perhaps the best gift he could give us would be eyes to see ourselves, the the part of ourselves that we've become blind to, the part of ourselves that sort of contradicts the, the myth that we've come to project about ourselves, that myth that we've got it all together, that myth that we don't need anything from anybody, that myth that we are rich, that myth that we are righteous, that myth that we have it all going on. Don't you understand? It's not the truth. Jesus, who is the truth, would simply love to reveal your true self to you. He would love to show us the true nature of our church. If we would listen to his voice, he would show us who we really are. He would reveal, perhaps, our lukewarmness. The final word to Laodicea is a beautiful word. He says, you need to be diligent. The word there is burn, boil. 
What is lukewarm? You've got to bring it back to the source of heat, the source of strength and passion, the source of love. And you've got to be set on fire once more. You've got to somehow become sickened by your own lukewarmness so that you desire once more to burn for him and to burn and boil and be set on fire for him. That's what Jesus wants for your life. This lukewarmness, this boring, bland Sunday morning faith that you call Christianity, it has no Christ in it. But if you will listen to his voice, if you will hear his knocking at the door of your heart, if you would listen to him, he will come inside. It won't be your life anymore, it'll be his life. And he will set your life on fire. Brothers and sisters, Jesus did not die on the cross so that you could live this life of lukewarmness. He wants you to burn for him. Burn for him. Let's pray together. Lord, we don't rightly understand how as a church it could even be possible that we could somehow be going through all of these, these motions of worship and yet you still be somehow outside the door knocking to come in. God, right now as a church, we want to throw, throw open wide the doors of this church to you. Lord, it is truly your church. Forgive us, Lord, for taking it over. Forgive us, Lord, for making it all about ourselves. Lord, forgive us for thinking about what we want and never asking what you want. Oh, Jesus, forgive us. Humble us. Help us, Lord, to be sickened by our own lukewarmness so that we would want to spit, Lord, out of our own lives the sin. Oh, Lord Jesus, help us to hear your voice in our lives, in our families, in our own hearts. Lord, truly, some of us at one time were really burning for you, passionately serving, devoted. But, Lord, we have grown so cold, our hearts cold as ice. Lord Jesus, today, help us to recognize our need. Help us to see our condition as it truly is, that we are always flat, broke, blind, miserable, pitiable, wretched, naked before you. Oh, Lord Jesus, let us understand our need for you so that we can find our satisfaction only in you. Oh, Lord Jesus, come to us today and let us come to you that we might find rest for our souls. Lord Jesus, help us to burn for you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.